Well, good morning, church. As we continue this morning uh, in this series we began last week, series called Collapse. It's in the uh, walking through the book of Lamentations together. Again, not the most uplifting of books in the Bible, but at the same time, it, it gives us language for dealing with the sufferings that we experience uh, in this life, and, and God has been gracious to give us uh, that gift. Last week, as we talked about lament, uh, we, we learned that lament begins when our, our time of trial becomes a turning point. We could say it this way, that our, our crisis can become a crossroads in our life. Many of us have experienced this kind of a thing. In the darkest times of our lives, we will either find ourselves turning away from God because of our suffering or turning toward God in the midst of our suffering. We also discussed the fact that there are two main sources of suffering in our lives, that sometimes we suffer because of other people's sins, and sometimes we suffer because of our own sins. And sometimes it's hard to differentiate the two. Sometimes we don't know why exactly we're suffering. We just are. As we look back at the, the two biggest events in the history of the people of Israel, God's Old Testament people, there are, there are two huge events in the Old Testament that kind of define the history of Israel, and, and they just so happen to mirror these two types of suffering. Uh, the first of those Old Testament events was uh, the Israelites' exodus from Egypt. They had spent 400 years in slavery under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had endured much suffering because of Pharaoh's hardness of heart toward them. This was an example of, of what it looks like to suffer because of someone else's sin. And God brought deliverance to the hand of Moses, and he brought them out, and he established a new covenant with them under Moses, and it was a new day for Israel. That was the first main event, the exodus from Egypt. The second main event that we see in Old Testament history was the exile to Babylon. It was about 850 years after the exodus from Egypt that God's people were exiled to Babylon. And the exile to Babylon is an example of when we suffer because of our own sins. God had made covenant with his people under Moses, and they had repeatedly broken that covenant until finally God fulfilled his promise given in Deuteronomy 28 and he sent them into exile they paid the price for their rebellion the prophet Jeremiah wrote this book of lamentations as a memorial to the intense suffering of God's people Israel during the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC and he demonstrates for us how we are to respond when the difficult times of our lives become overwhelming. Again, lament begins with a, a turning to God, but the second step of lament that we see again and again in these lament psalms in the book of Lamentations and various other, various other places in Scripture is, is following the turning to God, there is this complaining that takes place. Now, we all know the uh, New Testament encourages us that we do, would do everything without grumbling or complaining, and yet the Bible also demonstrates to us how we can bring our complaints to God, and He desires to hear those and responds in grace. And so I've entitled uh, today's message, The Complaint Department. 
I was thinking this week about a plaque that used to hang in our church office. I don't know. I think the last time we moved offices, it disappeared somewhere in the mix, and it was probably uh, for the best. But it said on it, complaint department, and it said push button below, and it was a mouse trap. And, and, and I think sometimes that's how we think about God. That if we were really honest with God and brought our complaints before him, that he would just snap us. That he would bring down the lightning. That God doesn't want to hear our grumbling and complaining. Uh, maybe some of us grew up in, in households where grumbling and complaining uh, got you something to grumble and complain about. And we think sometimes that that's the way that God will respond to us, and yet we see example after example, and Lamentations 2 is one of those examples of folks bringing their heartfelt and earnest complaints before God and asking God in prayer to come to them in the midst of their difficulties and to bring redemption. So once again, our, our definition of lament that we've been using uh, comes from a wonderful book by Pastor Mark Vrogop called In Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. We're going to try to get some more copies of that. They all walked off last week, uh, but over at our Grow Corner, we'll have to try to have some more next week. But he said this, lament is this, it's a, it's a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. It's not a prayer after pain. This is not post-pain prayer. This is prayer right in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the darkest times of our lives. It's this crying out to God like we saw just a moment ago in Psalm 77. And, and it's a prayer that eventually leads to trust. And we're going to get to that place in the coming weeks. But for now, we want to see the second step of lament is bringing our complaints before Almighty God. There are four complaints in Lamentations 2 that I want us to look at this morning that, that Jeremiah lays out before God, and they are heavy. He does not soft-sell this in any way. He had experienced one of the ugliest moments of human suffering that has ever taken place, that, that destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., and he writes this as a memorial, as a response to what he had seen. So let's look at his first complaint. It's in the first the ten verses of our chapter this morning. His first complaint involved what I would call fallow pity and the Lord's rebuke. By fallow, I mean it seemed as if God's compassion had somehow run out. When we think of fallow ground, we think of ground that is not yet cultivated, not yet bearing any fruit because it has not been sown. It's ground that's just kind of laying there worthless. And that's kind of the way that Jeremiah was looking at the mercy of God in this moment. God, have you forgotten how to be merciful? Have you forgotten how to show compassion? All that we have experienced has been so heavy and so difficult. They had lost everything. That's not an exaggeration. They had lost everything that they held dear. And Philip Graham Ryken said about this, he said, what was amazing about these losses was that they were all the Lord's doing. To be sure, they were the result of Judah's sin, but the reality still has to be faced. God had turned against his own people. He had not simply allowed his own city to be defeated. He had helped to destroy it. And again, we want to soften the language here. 
We want to make an excuse for God, and yet you see, in these first ten verses, there are more than two dozen verbs attributed to God himself that describe the destruction of Jerusalem. There is very little blame in this chapter put toward the Babylonians, though they had been one, the ones that held the, so, the swords and the spears, though they had been the ones that had set fire to the temple. Jeremiah writes about it as if these things had come directly from the hand of God. And we struggle with that. Let's just be honest. There's a place here where we, ha- we find a tension between the pain that we experience in this life and the promises that we know God has made. And we're quick to make an excuse for God in words like, well, God just allowed this to happen as if he somehow set his sovereignty aside and was unable to do anything about what took place. And yet Jeremiah does not do that. He forces us to wrestle with the reality that if our God is sovereign, if we say he is in control of all things, then we must wrestle with what Job wrestled with and said to his, wife, his own wife in the midst of his suffering, shall we receive good from the Lord and not evil? And we do want to be careful this morning. We do not want to attribute to God moral responsibility for evil and yet at the same time recognize that he uses the evil, the suffering, the difficulties in our lives as a part of his plan. So fallow pity in the Lord's rebuke. He describes Jerusalem here like a daughter who'd been disowned. In verse 1, Again, this chapter starts with the word how. An exclamation, how could this have happened, God? How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. It makes us think back to the days of the Exodus when God had led his people with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. But now he had set his people under a cloud and fire had burned their city to the ground. There was a reminder here that the hand of God that had once held compassion and love now held judgment in what appeared to be a lack of mercy. He had set his daughter under a cloud. He had cast down from heaven. He had not remembered. He had swallowed up. Just read through the verbs here in these verses. He had broken down. He had brought down to the ground. He cut down. He had withdrawn from them. He had burned. He had bent his bow. He killed. He poured out his fury. He became like an enemy. He swallowed up. He laid in ruins. He multiplied mourning and lamentation. He laid waste. In his fierce indignation, he spurned. He scorned. He disowned. He delivered we go on and on and on not verbs that we want to think about in relation to god and yet jeremiah attributes them directly to the hand of god and it makes us wonder when we look at passages like this in the old testament and this is why some people want to separate out and say well that's what the god of the old testament was like and now we come to the new testament and he's the god of love and mercy and grace and compassion as if god had some kind of a, a personality shift but we understand that god is the same yesterday today and forever 
And once again, if he is going to be the God of love and mercy and grace and compassion, he must also be the God of justice and wrath. Those two things are necessary. God cannot truly say he loves us if he is willing to allow us to die in our sins and not to bring discipline to the rebellious. God cannot proclaim his holiness and simply sweep sin under the rug. And again, here we see God's people suffering directly because of their own sin against God. For hundreds of years, they had repeatedly broken the covenant. The promise between God and His people had repeatedly been smashed to bits by these folks. They had not been faithful. And God had warned them of the consequences. We'll come to that later this morning. As we wrestle with this, we need to be reminded of the promise God has made. Hebrews 13. God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. But if we're honest, isn't it true that there are moments when we feel forsaken? If we would be honest, aren't there moments when we can really relate more with the way Jeremiah appears to describe God? Or we can just put on the pretty church face and go on with it. You see, lamentations won't allow us just to put on the nice Christian face and pretend as if there is not real suffering and pain in the world. It come, we come face to face with one of the darkest moments in history and we wonder how can God still be good and this still be happening? The wrestling is real and it's necessary. We see here not only was Jerusalem like a daughter who had been disowned, but the one who was her deliverer had become her destroyer. This is the same God who brought his Old Testament people out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt by his strong hand and by his mighty arm. He alone did it. Yes, Moses was his messenger and Aaron was his mouthpiece, but they had very little to do with it. God delivered his people. You remember those ten plagues that he brought upon Egypt, utterly decimating the most powerful nation in the world. And now 800 years later, he uses another most powerful nation in the world to chastise his people. This is the same God. And he is not some kind of bipolar God, one day wrathful and the next day merciful. His wrath and mercy are held in tandem with one another. It must be so. And as we come to verse 8 here, we find that it says the Lord determined to lay in ruins. This was not by accident. This was the plan of God being worked out. He determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. And in this picture, he stretched out like a measuring line. A measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. That term measuring line is a reference back to the days when the temple was built. That they were so careful to follow the design of God in the construction of the temple that they laid out the measuring line to make sure they did exactly as God had said. And yet again and again, they had thrown out the measuring line. And it's here as if God picks up the measuring line out of the scrap heap and uses it to measure off the land that would not be built up but would be laid low. 
He was the one who caused Rampart and Wall to lament as if the walls themselves were crying out and they languished together. And then in verse 9, we find the gates had sunken low, the ruin, and her bars had been ruined and broken. Her kings and princes were now among the nations. King Zedekiah, the last thing he ever saw was the slaughtering of his sons, and they put out his eyes and carried him off to prison in Babylon. There was no king, there was no law, there were no prophets anymore, there was no vision from the Lord. It was a reminder of what Proverbs 29 says, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. And God had said, we go all the way back to Deuteronomy 28, God had said, if you keep my law, if you walk in my ways, if you're faithful toward what I have given you to be and to do, there will be blessing for you. But if you cast off my law, I will no longer give you visions through my prophets. I will no longer speak to you as I once did. And there will be destruction. There are blessings for obedience and there are curses for disobedience. The second complaint begins in verse 11. And it says, if Jeremiah himself becomes the spokesman, he's been speaking about all that God had done more than the third person. Now he becomes the first person actor beginning in verse 11. And he speaks here, this second complaint is about fierce pain and the people's ruin. And look there at verse 11. It's such a graphic description of suffering. He said, my eyes are spent with weeping. Have you ever cried so much that you couldn't cry anymore? Your eyes were spent with weeping. There, was no more, there were no more tears to come out. My stomach churns. You were sickened by your grief. My bile is poured out to the ground. It made you vomit. It was so intense. Why was he in such intense suffering? He said, because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They had been under, the sea, under siege by the Babylonians for two years. Food had run out. The people were literally dying in the streets, and some had even turned to cannibalism in order to stay alive. Here we see God's messenger becoming the chief mourner. It's as if he's, he's the one who's now voicing their complaint to God. He's the one who was voicing their grief to God. This one who had brought them warning after warning. Jeremiah was one of the voices. Go back and read the book of Jeremiah. And he had warned them for 40 years. He had warned them that destruction was coming. He had called them to repentance all of those days. And, and all that they had done was persecute him. They tried to kill him. They threw him in a, into a cistern at one point. They put him in prison various times. All he had experienced because of his faithfulness to God was more suffering at the hands of God's people. And yet notice, when God brought the destruction he had promised, we never once see Jeremiah being the I told you so guy. Many of us, we love that role, don't we? We love to be right. We love to be the I told you so guy, but that's not the stance that Jeremiah takes. When God brought the destruction, Jeremiah entered into the devastation. He entered into the weeping. He became, as Romans 12 says, one who 
weeps with those who weep. And church, that's a New Testament command. The Bible encourages us to be the kind of people who weep with those who weep. As we talked about last week, we are sometimes so quick to come with our little platitudes to folks when they're in the midst of their suffering. We like to come and we like to bring a, a Romans 8.28 or a, a Jeremiah 29.11. We know God's doing something good here, right? And yet the Bible encourages us that we not come simply with our sweet little platitudes, but instead that we are willing to weep with those who weep, to enter in to the sufferings of others, to show true compassion. The word compassion literally means to suffer with others. Jesus showed compassion. Jesus wept with the weeping, John eleven thirty five. 35. Will we, will we be that kind of people? Verse 13, he's describing the suffering of his people. It seemed as if there was really no metaphor for their misery. What could he compare it to, he says? What can I liken to what you've experienced? Your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? That's the main question of this passage. Who can bring healing to this kind of devastation? What can possibly be done? It seemed as if there was no hope, and yet there was a promise from God that remained. He sounds like the psalmist in Psalm 77. That I cried aloud to God, aloud to God, he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. It's a strange thing, isn't it? The thought of crying out to God, seeking comfort, and yet at the same time, it's as if our soul refuses to be comforted. It, it seems as if those two things can't go together, and yet, for many of us, we've walked in that kind of a day. When we're crying out for comfort and yet our soul seems to be refusing any comfort that would come. Let's go to the third complaint. Look at verse 14. He begins to talk about some of the source of the suffering. He talks about false prophets and the Lord's reason for all of this. We'll get to the reason here in just a moment. But first of all, he talks about these false prophets. And Jeremiah had seen many in his day. He had seen uh, many of these false prophets who were making false promises to God's people. In fact, false pro prophets always bear with them false promises. We see them in our own day. Those who, who, would, who would proclaim a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, false prophets who are saying, if you'll just put your faith in Jesus, everything in this life will go well for you. And if you're not healthy, wealthy, and happy, you must be doing something wrong. And yet throughout the scriptures, do we not see evidence that God's people continually face pain and persecution and suffering? And even Jesus said to his disciples, in this life you will have trouble, but you can take heart because I've already overcome this world. The victory has already been won, though the battles continue to rage. Jeremiah 8, speaking of those false prophets, he said, they have healed the wound of my people lightly. They've acted as if the wound wasn't so serious. And they have been saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. They'd been saying, we're fine. We can trust in Egypt. They'll rescue us. We're fine. 
We have the Davidic covenant that there will always be a king on David's throne. No one can destroy us. We're fine. We have the temple in the heart of our city that represents the presence of God among us, His people Israel. No one can take us down. They, in their pride, rose up and said, we're invincible. And yet they forgot. They forgot that there was more to the story. 2 Timothy 4 reminds us in our own day, the time is coming and I would say it is here, it is now, when the people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And we know our tendency, don't we? We want to come into the house of God and we want to be uplifted and we want to be encouraged and we want to walk away with, with, with smiles on our faces and, and joy in our hearts. And there are days for that. There are days for that. But there are also days when the Word of God should lay us low. There are days when the, when the message that God has for us leads us to repentance and to lament. And we need those days just as much as the others. Because we need to know how to respond to the difficult times. And it's not just put on a happy face. The power of Christ is not the power of positive thinking. We need to understand that God has given us language. This language of lament that meets us in the, in the moments of our sorrow and our languishing. It enables us to get real. Speaking of getting real, God was really just getting real here at this point in history with what he had already promised to do hundreds of years before. Again, those two main moments in Israel's history, the exodus and the exile. And shortly after the exodus, God had given a, a variety of promises through his servant Moses, and they all culminate in Deuteronomy chapter 28. You might just mark that down and go home and read it. Deuteronomy 28 is split right down the middle. And in Deuteronomy 28, God is laying before his people what is going to happen for them. That in those seasons, when they were walking in obedience to his word, worshiping, as him, worshiping him as he deserved to be worshipped, and living their lives for him, in those seasons, that there would be blessing abundant. That they, their territory would be expanded. They would see the hand of God blessing them in their homes, and, and, in, and in the temple, and in all of the, the vast resources that God would lay at their disposal. But the second half of Deuteronomy 28 lays out the other side of the picture, which is this. In the days when they were not obedient to God, when they did refuse to walk in faithfulness toward the covenant, when they chose sin and rebellion against God, when they worshipped false gods and followed evil kings, that they would be filling up a cup of wrath that they would eventually have to drink. You see, God's pronouncements are His proofs. He's always faithful to His Word. He had been long-suffering for 800 years. Put that in perspective, folks. Our country is barely 200 years old. Israel had been given 800 years of mercy between the exodus and the exile. 
And most of that 800 years was not Israel walking in faithfulness toward God. If we were to sum it up, we would probably say it's about 90-10. There was about 10% of the time when they were faithful to God and about 90% where they weren't. And yet God had been long-suffering. He had been patient with them. He had extended mercy again and again and again until the days of King Manasseh when he said enough is enough. No more. It's done. The cup is full. And now it's just a waiting being poured out on my people. Ezekiel, a contemporary of Jeremiah, he said it this way. Speaking on behalf of the Lord, he said, I am the Lord. I have spoken. It shall come to pass. I will do it. Do we view the word of God in that way? That this is the most certain certainty in all of the cosmos. Do we understand that if God has spoken, it will come to pass? He says, I will not go back, I will not spare, I will not relent. According to your ways and your deeds, you will be judged, declares the Lord God. And that's a warning for us. For those who would continue to persist in sin, who would think, I've still got another day to plead the mercies of God, who would refuse to walk in repentance and continue to walk in rebellion, assuming that God will never follow through on His word. You see, sometimes we begin to view God like that mama in Walmart who's continually saying to the kid, I'm going to spank your butt, I'm going to spank your butt, I'm going to spank your butt, but she never does it. For some of us, that's a very frustrating experience because the most important, we understand as parents, one of the most important things that we can do is be true to our word and be consistent and follow through when we say we're going to do something. You see, some people view God that way, as if he's never going to bring the hammer. He's never going to follow through with the curse. It's just going to be blessing after blessing after blessing, no matter what we do. And yet we find that God is faithful to his word. He is long-suffering, but when the cup of judgment is full, there does come a point of no return. Whatever way you view that, I want to say this. If you persist in your rebellion against God and that lasts through your dying day that will be a point of no return for you and I do not wish that upon any of us I pray that we would understand the gravity of these things I pray that we would understand there's a truth being set before us it's not easy but it is necessary for us to see one last complaint this morning. And it involved faltering prayer in the people's response. Once again, even after everything he's laid out, such difficult things, in the end of this chapter, once again, we find Jeremiah turning to prayer. We may be tempted to think, how can you pray to a God like this? who's brought such destruction and such pain. Again, these moments of pain will become turning points where we either turn to God or we turn away from Him. And here Jeremiah shows us what it looks like, beginning in verse 18, to turn to God. He said, Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Again, verse 19, Arise and cry out in the night. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. And then he himself prays in verse 20. Look, O Lord, and see with whom have you dealt thus. 
And we see him laying out his prayer before God. Because Jeremiah recognizes something that we need to recognize, folks. He recognizes that our destroyer is also our only deliverer. That while we are deserving the wrath of God because of our rebellion, He is the only one who can redeem us. And so the apostles preached that His was the only name given under heaven by which we must be saved. They continually proclaimed the deliverance that was found only in Jesus Christ. This was not do good, be nice, help others. It was we are sinners in need of a Savior again and again and again. There was this reminder to the people and calling them to repentance and faith. You see, His discipline has a purpose in our lives. His discipline is always meant to lead us to a point of decision. Every hard season that you ever experienced in your life was meant to lead you to a place of decision. And even as your life was filled with complaints, and maybe they were even complaints against God, I want to say to you this morning, I have heard far too often in recent days, well, I know we're not supposed to question God. That is garbage. Hear me say this morning, that is a false teaching that's coming from the mouth of the devil into your ear. Where do you not see people questioning God throughout the Bible? The problem is not us questioning God. It's what do we do with our questions? Are we bringing those questions to the only one who can answer As, as goes our complaints, let me say this. Are we willing to complain about God to God or just to others? See, this is how we roll, folks. I'm just going to be honest for a moment. When we have a complaint against another individual, we find it so much more easy and convenient to bring that complaint to everybody else rather than to the one we should be talking to. And I fear we do the exact same thing with God. Our hearts are heavy and burdened and we are downtrodden and we feel like what we see here in Lamentations 2. But rather than running to the throne of grace, we run to all kinds of other thrones that have no power to deliver. We run to all kinds of other people who have no power to save. And we complain and we groan and we bring all of these things to those who can do nothing about our situation. But Jeremiah shows us what it looks like in the midst of our suffering to run to our Savior, to come before His throne of grace with confidence that we might find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. And to recognize that every time His Discipline in our lives has a purpose. Revelation 3.19, written to the churches, by the way. Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, he says, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So as we experience the disciplinary hand of God, 
May we recognize that that is a sign of his love for us if it leads us to repentance. The father disciplines the son that he loves. Does he not? It's a sign of love that discipline exists in the relationship. And if that leads us to repentance, may we see it's a sign of the kindness of God toward us. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And so let us be zealous and repent. Where our tongues have been out of bounds, where we have boasted in that which we should not have been boasting about, where we have allowed secret sin to continue and have an indwelling presence in our lives. May we recognize that He has been faithful to call us again and again and again to repentance. And by the way, He wasn't done with His Old Testament people either. Just as He had promised the judgment that was brought by the Babylonians, He had promised that 70 years later He would restore His people to Jerusalem. There would be a day of redemption yet to come, not because they deserved it, but because He is faithful. The one who brought their discipline would also bring their deliverance. Will we trust Him in that way? Ultimately, we can find that We can truly bring all of our complaints before our holy God and cast all of our cares upon Him because of what Christ has done for us at the cross. You see, because of our sin, we deserve only God's wrath, but Jesus was forsaken so that we could be forgiven. He took upon Himself the ruin that was due our sin so that we could be redeemed by His blood. Truly all the promises of God find their yes, their amen in Him. And that's why it's through Him that we utter our amen to to God for His glory. As believers, we don't live based upon explanations. We live based upon proclamations. Christ is our deliverer. The one who has called us again and again to repentance and faith. It's not a one and done. This turning from sin and trusting in our Savior we see that even lament is a gift from God. It reminds us of His goodness even in the midst of our pain and brings us to a greater trust in Him. And so I ask you, will you practice this grace of lament in the days ahead? It begins by turning to God and then bringing your complaints before Him. We can and we must be boldly honest with God. There is so much in this life that is intensely painful. And it does us absolutely no good to mask our pain with some kind of frail politeness. Instead, let us draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Father, help us. Lord, you know our wrestling. This picture we have seen of you in your word today is not an easy picture. We we would much rather run to John 10 and see the good shepherd than we would to see here in Lamentations 2 the strong warrior. 
We would much rather run to that place of seeing you in your compassion and in your mercy than seeing you in your wrath and in your condemnation. And yet, Father, far from worshiping some kind of false god of our own imaginations, who is often a a weak God who is unable to save. May we trust in the Lord God Almighty who is sovereign over all things. And may we learn to receive from Your hand. Even when at times those gifts bring us great grief. You are the God who wounds us that you might heal us. You are the God who disciplines us that you might deliver us. You are the God who at times breaks our hearts, especially when they are bent toward things that will only bring us to destruction so that we might find our one true love. We thank you, Father, for loving us enough to discipline us. And we pray in this moment, lead us by your kindness to repentance. We pray this in Jesus' name.